This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Um, welcome to those of you joining us online and welcome to everyone here in-house um, for our final lecture of our summer term here at Southboro Labrie. My name is Sarah Chestnut. Um, my husband Joshua and I are workers here along with um, Ben and Nikayla and Kelly and um, we're really thankful for the summer that we've had here with um, this side of the room um, and some of you over there too. This uh, is wrapping up our lecture series for the summer, so we'll be taking a break until September um, when you can kind of stay tuned for what's coming when we start up again for our fall term. We'll have the lectures going again, um, definitely in-house and probably continuing online, but we'll keep you posted. Um, so tonight we are thinking about clay and... The title of my lecture is In the Potter's Hand, A Brief Biblical Theology of Clay and Reflections from the Potter's Wheel. I have loved pottery as long as I can remember, and everywhere that I have traveled, um, I have purchased heavy and breakable souvenirs. And this is one of them. This little mug um, comes from the Czech Republic. I picked it up at a potter's kiosk in a little grocery store complex near the school that I taught at for a couple of years. And this vase... A uh, little jug comes from Spain, where I spent a week um, traveling and making some big decisions in my life. And I have this gorgeous teapot that um, was made by a potter in Vancouver and was a friend of ours when we lived there and uh, made many pieces of pottery that were given to us as wedding presents. Um, Pottery tells a story. I think that's one of the reasons that I love it. This bowl was made by my Aunt Lisa, who turned to pottery during a very difficult season in life and found um, a, a lifeline in um, time at the wheel and making things of clay. And some of my favorite uh, gifts that have been given to me include pottery, this little... Um, salt cave, as I call it, um, was made by farmhouse potters up in Vermont, and it was a gift from a very dear friend who bought herself a matching one and keeps it on her kitchen counter. Um, we have spent many hours cooking together, and so this um, speaks to me every time I'm salting our food of my friend Mary. Um, so... One of the reasons I love pottery is uh, that it's the art of an artifact. It speaks of a time and a place, and um, it helps me remember my own history 
And a year and a half ago, I took my first wheel throwing class. It was a gift for my 40th birthday, something I've always wanted to try. And I am completely hooked on it, and I bring all of the enthusiasm of a true amateur to this topic tonight. I have um, experienced none of the toil that is involved in any and every art and craft. I haven't gotten there yet. I'm just completely in love with clay and the wheel and uh, what I know so far of the process, which I am very aware is, is, is just a skimming of the surface at this point. But the creative process of making a pot on the wheel is just filled with images and metaphors for what it means to be human, for what God is like, and for what happens in prayer. And it's this image and metaphor of a master potter's hands on clay spinning on the potter's wheel that we will be considering together tonight. If you've ever watched a potter at work at a wheel, you know it is mesmerizing. And watching from the outside, it seems quite miraculous. This formless lump of clay at first wobbly on the wheel is drawn up and pushed down and is brought into this perfect spinning yet somehow still center and then it's opened and it's lifted and it's shaped into a vessel, a bowl or a vase, a jar, a pot of endless shapes and sizes and variations. This is an image and a metaphor that is used by the Old Testament prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, and it's an image and metaphor that is drawn on again by the Apostle Paul in Romans, where he quotes Isaiah. Job 2 uses the language of being clay. He pleads with God in his anguish, your hands fashioned and made me, yet you want to destroy me utterly. Remember that you made me from clay, and you will return me to dust. And in Psalm 22, written by David and then prayed by Jesus on the cross, My strength is dried up like a potsherd a broken clay fragment, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. <clears throat> well, a couple of you have joked with me about um, being the last lecturer of the term and having the final word. <laughs> and it may be slightly underwhelming to hear that my final words um, for this term, for you, for this summer term at Labrie, are very simple. Read your Bible and pray. But that, in a nutshell, is what we are going to do tonight. 
First, I want to better understand how Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Paul were using the potter and clay metaphor and consider what this metaphor has to teach us about who God is and who we are. So we're doing a little biblical theology and a little biblical anthropology. That's the read your Bible part. And then second, I want to explore this image as a metaphor for prayer. Like uh, Esther's Monday morning prayer meeting reflections, in which she talked about um, prayer as a seed that you plant. And she referenced George Herbert's wonderful poem, Prayer, that stacks up metaphor after metaphor for prayer, um, including prayer is the breath of man returning to his birth, God's breath in man returning to his birth, and engine against the almighty reversed thunder. Tonight, I also want to think about prayer as clay centered in the potter's hand. That's the prayer part that we'll get to. Francis Schaeffer wrote of the need of every person to bow twice before God. First, in the realm of being, to bow in regard to metaphysics as a creature before the infinite and personal creator, and to bow a second time in the realm of morals to acknowledge that he or she has real guilt before the God who is truly there, and that she is in need of a solution to this problem of sin outside uh, his or her own finite resources and limited abilities. To put uh, this in terms more suited to uh, tonight's lecture, I might say every person needs to bow before God as clay before the potter. And every person must bow in recognition that they are lumpy, formless, and hopelessly off-centered before the potter who alone can bring them into center and create a beautiful and purposeful shape. We cannot center ourselves. Apart from Christ, we remain hopelessly off-center. When we know ourselves as ones who are made before we do any making, as created before we do any creating, and as subjects before we exercise whatever limited sovereignty we might have in this world, we are then also compelled to ask, and what's the unmade maker like? What's this uncreated creator like? What's this ultimate, unsubjected sovereign like? In whose hands am I? And that's a question I'd love for you to ask tonight. In whose hands 
am I? What are those hands like? So, part the first are biblical study and reflection. My title promises a brief biblical theology of clay, and indeed what I hope to give you tonight is really the 30,000-foot view of the use of this image and metaphor in the Bible, with references to its companion language of dust. As I've already noted, we'll focus on places where this image and metaphor is most fully developed in Isaiah and Jeremiah and in Romans. I have alluded to this language of clay and dust in Job and in Psalm 22, and Paul also um, uses a clay metaphor, uh, the treasure that we have in jars of clay in 2 Corinthians. I won't uh, attend to that one specifically. Um, and I do think a few preliminary remarks about the creation account in Genesis are merited. In Genesis 2, it is written that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Sandy Richter is an Old Testament scholar, and she um, notes that these two parallel creation accounts that we get in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 give us, in Genesis 1, this sweeping panoramic view of creation that emphasizes God's transcendence. And then in Genesis 2, we get more anthropomorphic language um, for God, a portrayal of God with human qualities, the first craftsman, then gardener, and then builder. God, the craftsman, the potter, we might say, making man from dust. In Genesis 1, we hear that God created humans in his image. And then in Genesis 2, God is imaged, making from dust or clay, gardening, building. The idea and the imagery of humans being formed from soil is not unique to the biblical account of creation. Other ancient Near Eastern creation myths also describe God's forming humans from clay. So too do Maori and Incan creation myths show uh, a God forming humans from clay. Well, what is clay exactly? Wikipedia informed me that clay is a fine-grained soil with clay minerals, specifically hydrous aluminum phyllosilicates, which in my poetic rendering means watery metal rock. <laughs> and in terms of the creation of humans, clay is important even in evolutionary biology's 
theories about human origins. Where there is clay, there are humans. Being human, it seems, from every worldview,、um, means having a profound and definitive connection with the earth, with clay, with dust. God's closing words of the curse that we read of in Genesis 3, that came after came of Adam and Eve's disobedience, are. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you will return. What does it mean to be human? It means to be created, to be part of creation. And dependent upon God, the Creator, for our existence, we are made before we are ever makers. We are created before we are creative, and we are subject、uh, before we exercise sovereignty on the earth. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Dust and breath, earth and ruach, God's life-giving spirit, breath wind. Without breath, the dusty shape does not live. And without dust, this life takes no form. Where there is clay, there are humans. Archaeological evidence also indicates that where there are humans, there is pottery. The making of clay pots is one of the oldest known human inventions. And the earliest shards of pottery have been dated to around 20,000 BC, which puts it in the Neolithic period、um, as humans were making the transition to agriculture and settledness. Sometime between 6 and 4,000 BC, the first potter's wheel. Uh, this is not an image of the first Potter's wheel. <laughs> Don't want that gesture to be misleading. But、um, between six and four thousand BC, the first Potter's wheel was invented in Mesopotamia, where there are humans. There is the impulse and the aptitude to make, among other things, the creativity. This creativity is one of the marks. Of being made in the image of God, and it's a capacity that, though fallen, remains true about humans. Well, we are now going to do a huge flyover of much of the Old Testament, God's covenant with Noah, with Abraham. God's deliverance of the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt, the giving of the law and the formation of Israel as a nation, 
the stories of David, the king after God's own heart. And we're going to land late in Israel's kingdom period, where God's people with whom he has renewed his covenant again and again in spite of their failures and unfaithfulness are in the grip of idolatry. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah were prophets to Israel during its kingdom period, which dates roughly um, from 1000 to 900 BC. When following King David, a long succession of kings failed to lead the people in worshiping God alone. The kings failed to deal with idolatry and failed to be faithful to the covenant with God. God raised up prophets to be something like covenant watchdogs who were to remind Israel of its calling to be God's servant and to be a blessing to the nations. Isaiah warned that Israel's rebellion and idolatry would be costly and that God would use the great neighboring empires of Assyria and Babylon to bring judgment on Israel. Jeremiah was a priest in Jerusalem and lived during the final decades of the kingdom of Judah. He predicted the Babylonian exile and lived through the siege of Jerusalem and witnessed the exile himself, which you can read about in 2 Kings uh, 24 and 25. Now, even as the prophet's messages are ones of judgment and warning, They are also words of hope that God's covenant will yet be fulfilled. Indeed, one function of the prophet and the prophetic writings is to strip away all false hopes so that true hope can rise. Before we look at these two prophets' specific use of the potter and clay imagery and metaphor, I want to note that prophetic writings are filled with symbolic language, and the prophets drew their symbolism from the ordinary world. The Word of God was present in the simple events of everyday life. Imagery of vineyards, of plowing and planting, of uh, using plumb lines and cornerstones, images of hewed out cisterns, shepherding and animal husbandry, images of childbearing, and images of desert dwelling lions and wolves and leopards ready to attack are used among others that you might think of. All of these metaphors are drawn from daily life in Palestine and its surrounding area. And these are images that the prophet's hearers would have readily connected with and been challenged by. Regarding our metaphor, 
John Stott notes, the village potter at his wheel was a familiar figure in Palestine. Vineyards, plumb lines, shepherding, and the village potter are sadly not, um, at least as far as the potter goes, and vineyards maybe, <laughs> these are not part of our daily um, life imagery and input. And the way a metaphor works is by having two unlike things in comparison that strike and spark against each other, and that sheds light in both directions on these uh, components of a metaphor. But if you don't know anything about one of those halves of a metaphor, where's the spark? And I think that's often our problem as we come across metaphors in Scripture and in the writings of the prophets. So um, what I would like to do to just give us some imaginative input for the potter's wheel, and particularly the work of centering clay, because we'll come back to this later in the lecture, we're going to watch a very short video um, of a very upbeat and very contemporary potter uh, teaching you how to center clay on the wheel. Um, oh yeah, maybe. Joshua, how do I get to the, um, I need to stop it again. Right there. <laughs> we can already see it's like 
very close to center. The third key. Using your palm for the side over here and using this side of your hand for the top. So I'm going to get it wet with my sponge. And I'm pushing from the side first to get it in the center. And I'm pushing from the top with this part of my hand right there. So I can already see it's pretty close to center right there. But say it's Say it gets off-center. See how off-center that is? The fourth key to get, getting it centered is to make the clay move with your hands, not letting your hands move with the clay. So what I mean by that is a lot of beginners, when they're trying to get the clay centered, their hands are just going like this, right? And that's because that's what the clay is doing. Well, if we can keep our hands in one position and make the clay move to our hands instead of making our hands move with the clay, that's how we get it centered. So you'll see, I'll come in, and I'll just lock this arm in, and just lock it, and then make that clay move to my hand. So I'll lock that in, and I'll come from the top. And then we're centered. So that's how we go from being uncentered to centered very, very quickly. Oftentimes when I'm teaching young children, if they have if they have an uncentered piece of clay, like this, they'll be going like this, and then I'll just take my hand and I'll just push and just lock that right there. And then all of a sudden they feel it going into center. The fifth step to centering clay is time on the wheel. You just gotta do it a lot. So say you can't get it, you try throwing a pot and it's just not good, move on, try it again. You just gotta do it a ton of times until it just becomes really comfortable. So we got a little bit bigger piece of clay that we're gonna throw out. I recommend starting with just like a little bit around one pound because sometimes a bigger piece of clay can be hard for beginners. Thank you. Yep. Yep, plenty of everybody in to do lots of Okay. Just this one here too. Okay, that's it. Okay. And. Nope. Back to Zoom. I'm working on it. Did I. Go to the Zoom icon on the bottom. Keep going over it and see it there. Oh no, okay, you guys group the sign back in? Yeah, it's fine. Sorry. Oh. Sorry, everybody. Okay, they're, they could, they're, I'm on here. We did this. We're all still here. so much easier if I could have a potter's wheel right here in the library and just do this live demonstration. <laughs> yeah.
It's okay. Yeah. Um, she's still on? Yep. But, uh, no, just rejoin. Okay. I, um, yeah, I go through the the website, not through the, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to find it. Well, it's, yeah, it says she's still hanging in on this one, but I didn't know that to <laughs> this? Is that what it's on the Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Just keep talking amongst okay. yourselves. Just I'm just going to unplug I'm this. And yeah, and then it's yeah. easier to, like, I can Talk do this. Talk amongst yourselves. Yeah, there it yeah. is. Sorry, I can't see it. You know, it's like when, um... Sorry. It's okay. It's, um... <laughs> yeah. There you go. Okay. Um, you have to start go back up to you have to start the video uh, the audio again. Oh there. And then we're okay. <laughs> <Sure. laughs> All right. Oh Let's thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have the village potter as part of our day, but we have like the village of tech support. Sarah, you might just have to. Now's your time to get brownies. Here's <laughs> <laughs> where. Yeah, Which one? I see. Um, I'll do it. Yep, I've got it. Right there. Yep. Okay. Thank you so much. Sorry to everyone here and to those uh, afar. Um, hopefully, you saw that video of the centering of clay. Um, I want you to just tuck away for later um, what he said about working with kids and sometimes coming alongside them and just locking their hand in a little bit to help them. Just hold on to that for future reference as well. Okay, so now I want to take some time to read and to hear together these key passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah and then Paul in Romans. Um, I will make comments and observations after we hear these passages. And I've asked several people in the room to read so that we can mix up the voices. 
Um, and so when I call out the, the passage and you know it's you, just stand and, and read it loudly for us so we can hear. Isaiah uses potter and clay imagery um, in a few places, and the first reference comes in chapter 29, which is a lament over besieged Jerusalem. The Lord confronts the so-called wisdom of the people, saying, Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Here, the potter and clay imagery that will be revisited a few more times throughout the book of Isaiah is introduced to confront the upside-down way of thinking and living that is prevalent in Israel. And the, the ridiculousness of this role reversal, humans putting themselves in God's place, is depicted um, by quarrelsome, back-talking clay addressing the potter. And this image, I think, should strike us as ludicrous. It's a clay who's talking rudely. <laughs> The main passage that I want to look at here in Isaiah, which is the one that Paul references in Romans 9, is in chapter 45. This same metaphor and dynamic of animate, back-talking clay is used. Um, And it's speaking, the larger context is um, about Cyrus, the king of Persia, who is used by God, is God's instrument. So, um, Tim, would you read Isaiah 45, 9 through 12? And if you're joining us online, I just want to give you that reference in case you can't hear the readers. Sure, come on up. Actually, yeah, we're right there. That's great. Yep. All right, friends. Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to him who strives with him, who forms him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, Ask of me the things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all your hosts. Thank you, Tim. 
I want to note one thing in this passage. The function and the effect of parallelism. The potter followed by the father metaphor. Parallelism is a common device in Hebrew poetry and prophetic writings. And there are three main types of parallelism. Um, parallelism that repeats. It's called synonymous parallelism. parallelism. Uh, parallelism that sets up a contrast. Antithetical parallelism. And then parallelism that advances thought, called synthetic parallelism. And here the image of the clay speaking back to the potter, what are you making? Your work has no handles. And we can hear this impatient questioning. In the process of making, there is this impatience. And then a critical spirit. There's no handles. This imagery is paralleled, followed, um, with the image of a child questioning his own existence to his father. This is an example, I think, of this synthetic parallelism. Um, the relationship of artist with art is heightened and deepened in the relationship of parent and child. Here we have two lenses for understanding God, the lens of the potter artist and the lens of the parent. And it's worth noting that while these relationships illuminate how we should think about our position and our relationship to God, these two relationships also illuminate each other. We might think of the creative demands of parenting and the nurturing demands of art making. <clears throat> the other note I want to make um, about this passage is that it appears in the context of an extended address on the folly of idolatry in which the Lord is declared the only Savior. There is uh, image after image of humans making things, making idols. And here the image of the creator making humans, like the potter works with clay, is used to turn things right side up again. Before you are a maker, you are made. Remember this. Bow before the one true God as a creature. The parallelism of potter and father is picked up again toward the end of Isaiah in a beautiful prayer for mercy. And this time the order is reversed. We read first the potter or the father and then the potter. In Isaiah Oops, I'm sorry, I forgot to put that up. In Isaiah 64, verses 8 and 9. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, 
and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hands. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. This is quite a different tone than the tone of the back-talking clay. Here there is a tone of humility and an appeal to God's identity as father and potter. And that is a good way to pray, to remind God of his character, of who he is, and by so doing, remind yourself of that. That is a path of hope. And now for Jeremiah. Isaiah used the image of potter and clay as a poetic metaphor. And here in Jeremiah, we will see the prophet both making proclamations and then also performing a prophetic act. In the first, we hear of clay that is workable, clay that has not yet taken its final fired form. And then in the second, we hear of a finished, hardened vessel, a flask. So, Jeremiah 18, verses, oh no, 1 to 11. Don't know what I think. Andy, thank you. The word that came to Jeremiah, the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel. It seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I have intended to do to it. Now therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. Thank you. <clears throat> so again, here we, we have this image of um, a potter working a, a pot into one shape and then something goes wrong and the potter has to recenter the clay and create a new shape. And I think it, 
it shows an amazing responsiveness and flexibility and creativity on the part of the potter to do that. And that is what God is being depicted as, a potter that can be moving in one direction with this pot and then, as it doesn't go as planned, to reshape it, recenter it. So that pliability of um, the clay, I think, is important to note. And then the way that the potter um, does something new again with it. And now, um, in contrast, in Jeremiah 19, we depart from the central image of um, the clay in the potter's hand on the wheel, um, and here we hear of a hardened vessel, and clay, when it is fired, becomes stone-like. And I'll just warn you, this is a slightly gory, not slightly, it's a gory um, passage. So... Esther. Jeremiah 19, Thus says the Lord, Go, buy a potter's earthenware glass, and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests, and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom at the entry of the potter gate, and proclaim there the words that I tell you. You shall say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. Because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of innocents and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire of burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This place shall no more be called Gophet or the valley of the sun of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And in this place I will make void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem, and will cause their people to fall by the sword before their enemies, and by the hand of those who seek their life. I will give their dead bodies for food to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the earth. And I will make this city a horror, a thing to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all the feelings. And I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters, and everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life inflict them. Then you shall break the glass in sight of the men who go with you, and shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, So will I break this people and this city, as one breaks a potter's vessel, so that it can never be mended. 
Thank you, Esther. <clears throat> the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel is described in 2 Kings 17. Assyria's king, Shalmaneser, attacked Samaria for three years, conquered it, and sent the people into exile. Why? Idolatry and betrayal of Yahweh and the covenant with him. As we just heard, um, they were offering child sacrifice. In Second Kings, um, we read, they followed worthless images so that they too became worthless. They burned their sons and daughters alive. The destruction of the southern kingdom and Jerusalem and the Babylonian exile is described in 2 Kings 25. Nebuzadaran, commander of Nebuchadnezzar's guard, burned down the Lord's temple, the royal palace, and all of Jerusalem's houses. He burned down every important building. The whole Chaldean army under the commander of the guard tore down the walls surrounding Jerusalem. Indeed, Israel became a shattered flask. The contrast in these two passages is pointed In the first, the clay is still workable, and the potter's ability to make changes, to be flexible and creative, is emphasized. And in the second, the finished, hardened, stone-like flask cannot be changed except through breaking. So where's the hope now? And indeed, the hope is pared down and pared down and pared down. And we're going to do another um, flyover in biblical history here. Um, All of Israel's hope has been narrowed down and is building um, on this hope and anticipation for a Messiah. We're not going to read anything from the Gospels, um, but we are going to hear a lot of the Gospel from Paul um, as we turn to Romans 9. So I'll invite Hillary to read. In Romans 9, Paul is lamenting Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah and um, reaffirmation uh, to be a true Israelite is not confirmed and conferred merely by birth. So let's hear Romans 9, uh, verses 14 to 24. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he pardons whoever he wills. He will say to you then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What will what is molded say to his molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no light over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he is called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Thank you. <clears throat> um, leading up to this passage in Romans 5 through 8, Paul is reveling in the work of Christ to set us free from death, to set us free from sin, to set us free from the law. And he seems nearly bursting with ecstatic awe by the end of chapter 8. In Romans 8, 31 and 32, he says, So what are we going to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Who will bring a charge against God's elect people? It's God who acquits him, acquits them. Who is going to convict them? It is Christ who died, even more who was raised, and who is at God's right side. It is Christ who also pleads our case for us, Who will separate us from Christ's love? Nothing and no one. Well, as Joshua rightly reminded me when I turned to look at this particular potter and clay text in Romans 9, um, Romans 9 through 11 is an exegetical minefield. And indeed, the interpretation of these chapters and Paul's reflection on Israel's rejection of Christ as the Messiah and reconsideration of Israel's history 
has often been uh, reduced down to a debate over predestination and free will. And in this way, I fear that we can too easily lose the forest for the trees. And that's what I would like to avoid um, tonight. Perhaps a key sentence in the passage Hillary read for us is, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It depends. What's the it? Salvation, belonging, redemption from sin and death, freedom, the gospel, as Paul puts it in Romans 1, God's own power for salvation to all who have faith in God, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Pauline scholar John Barclay notes that uh, the issue is not whom God has chosen um, and whom he has left out, nor simply that he has exercised choice. The emphasis here lies on how God has created his people. Barclay notes that the consistent narrative through Romans 9 through 11 is the incongruity, this is a choice word for, for this, the incongruity of divine election, the absence of a fit between divine mercy and the worth of its recipients. From start to finish, Israel is constituted by a calling that bears no relation to its worth. And it's into this privilege that the Gentiles are drawn by indiscriminate grace. As I read Paul alongside Isaiah and Jeremiah, I hear Paul taking comfort in a pared-down hope, the only true hope God's people have ever had and the same hope that the prophets sought to stoke in the people of God. Hope in what God alone is capable of doing. Barclay notes, Paul lays bare the characteristics of Israel's election as a people created by divine choice. Their existence hangs on God's purpose, which can exclude or include, jettison or preserve, expand or reduce to a remnant, hate or love, and also turn again to love those not loved. Everything is designed to put Israel's past, present, and future into the hands of God so that the primary question is not what will Israel do now but what is God capable of doing it is disconcerting to have the future taken out of human control but ultimately it is the only ground of hope 
Paul employs Isaiah's image and metaphor of a potter with clay to emphasize the need for humility when seeking to understand the ways of God and to remember that we are creatures before the Creator. And how do we make sense of his subsequent questions um, that extend this metaphor further in light of this bigger picture of God's own power for salvation to all who have faith in God? Paul's question, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor and another for dishonorable use? And then this other question, what if God desiring to show his wrath and make his, make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Again, here I found John Barclay to be very helpful. He writes, The double possibility of mercy or hardening runs through the potter analogy, which envisages two kinds of pots, vessels of mercy, vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction. That looks like a settled double predestination, and has often been read that way, but it is important to note two things. These twin possibilities are not based on some pre-temporal or natural destiny, nor are they quite as final as they seem. The pots prepared for destruction are not shown here being destroyed, And that leaves an opening for Paul's hope in Romans 11. Barclay continues, The essential point has still to be rammed home. God is in charge of history, and his creative power is unlimited. The formation of God's people has always been under God's merciful control. Paul goes on to use a reference from Hosea, the prophet who was uh, charged to marry a prostitute as a living example of God's relationship with unfaithful Israel. And that also drives home this point of God's mercy. As I read Paul's question about vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy, alongside Jeremiah's prophetic act of literally destroying a clay vessel as a visual depiction and anticipation of what proved to be Jerusalem's destruction at the hand of the Babylonians, I can't help thinking that this is really consistent with Israel's history. Israel itself has, at different times, been a vessel of wrath, and a vessel of mercy. And the overarching story of God's redemptive history is to ensure 
that mercy might be poured out of a willing vessel. Jeremiah held up and smashed down a clay flask as a symbol of Israel's hardness of heart and its failure to be a vessel of mercy, a blessing to the nations. When I consider Paul's use of the metaphor of potter and clay, and I remember Isaiah's parallelism of potter and father, and I remember Paul's ecstatic question, if God is for us, who is against us? Followed by his awestruck statement and bedrock hope, he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. I can't help but think of another vessel, a cup of sour wine, a cup of wrath, a cup Jesus Christ prayed would pass, a cup drunk, and Christ, the vessel, smashed. On the cross, Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Jesus, the most workable clay, stripped of breath, returned to dust. And I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. The first task of the potter at the wheel is to center the formless lump of clay on the spinning wheel. And here in Romans 9 through 11, Paul is centering Israel's identity, Israel's past, and his own hope for Israel's future on the person and work of Jesus Christ. In his letters to the Colossian church and the Ephesian church, um, Paul centers, if you will, an even larger lump of clay on Christ, drawing it up and down, pressing all of creation on Christ, the still point of the turning world, as T.S. Eliot says. In Colossians, Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And then in Ephesians, this is what God planned for the climax of all times to bring all things together in Christ, the things in heaven along with the things on earth. 
forgot to make that change. So that's our 30,000 foot view of something of a biblical theology of clay. And we've been exploring this clay in the hands of a master potter metaphor in scripture. And I want to end with a brief consideration of this metaphor as we think about prayer. Because we can only do so much in one evening, we're focusing on centering. Before we work with the metaphor of centering um, for prayer, I want to acknowledge that the term centering has a life outside the potter's studio. Perhaps you have heard of finding your center or centering yourself. Indeed, if you Google what is centering, the first three search results uh, that come up are from Psychology Today, MindTools.com, and the American Psychological Association's Dictionary, and it takes uh, getting to the third page of search results to get to anything uh, having to do with clay. In uh, psychology, and in popular psychology, centering refers to getting back to the state of mind in which we feel like ourselves. When one is not centered, he or she might feel lost or out of touch with him or herself. And while I think this is certainly a common existential and psychological experience, and one that Christians are certainly not immune to, this is not exactly the kind of centering that I have in mind. I want to consider how a person can become centered on Christ. So as the potter sits down at the wheel and begins centering clay, the potter looks with the eyes and feels with the fingers if there's a wobble to the clay. And if there's a wobble, you know you have not centered the clay yet. When there is no wobble, when it is centered, the clay can be easily opened, moved outward, evenly to the walls, and the walls can be lifted and worked into countless shapes. But if the clay isn't centered, then the potter will have a very difficult time shaping a pot. It will be imbalanced wonky, as one of my teachers likes to say, prone to buckling and collapsing under its own off-centered weight as it spins. The taller it gets, and if it's not centered, um, that, what is it, centripetal, centrifugal force? Centripetal force. So I've got to get that down. So you remember seeing that in the video, how 
how it looked and when he off-centered the clay and you could see that wobble but then when it was centered um, that was also clear um, the potter and poet mc richards in a, a little book from 1962 called Centering in Pottery, Poetry, and the Person, which feels like it was written for me 40, however long ago, 80 years ago, <clears throat> she writes, of, uh, she, she tells of another master potter at the wheel. And she says this, he was centering the clay and then he was opening it and pulling up the walls of a cylinder. He was not looking at the clay. He had his ear to it. He was listening. It is breathing, he said. And then he filled it with air. Surprisingly biblical language for this um, description of what's happening in a craft. But, um, of course, every pot is actually filled with air until it is filled with something else. <clears throat> Richard continues saying, Centering is an act of bringing in not leaving out. It's brought about not by force, but by coordinations. It is difficult, if not impossible, for a potter to force his clay into center simply by exerted pressure. In order to take its new shape, the clay has to move. Tensions in the fingers, in the arms and back, Holding the breath, these things count. The potter has to prepare his body as he does the clay. Okay, so it's not hard to understand that when it comes to throwing a pot, what you do with your body matters. But as we consider centering as a metaphor for what can happen in prayer, I would like to ask, how often do you involve your body? And in what ways do you involve your body in prayer? Often the extent of our bodily participation in prayer is limited to closing our eyes and uh, folding our hands, which we learn as children to help us um, exercise some self-control when it's time to pray. Um, or maybe we hold hands with others at the table like we did last night at dinner. Well, I realize that this is also very much a cultural question. My own experience and what I see most among people uh, who come to Labrie, um, the majority who um, of whom are white and North American, um, have very cerebral and wordy understandings of prayer. So perhaps we can discuss more about the body and prayer in discussion time. I have been helped um, by the Christian contemplative practice of centering prayer 
which involves meditating on a word of scripture to reorient oneself in and to God's presence. Centering prayer is not new or new agey. Um, and though Catholic monastics have perhaps done the most with it, going all the way back to uh, the desert fathers and mothers of the first few centuries of the church, I think it is valuable to all Christians in all denominations. In the Spiritual Disciplines Handbook, Adele Calhoun defines centering prayer as a form of contemplative prayer where the prayer seeks to quiet scattered thoughts and desires in the still center of Christ's presence. She writes, Centering prayer is distinctively different from practices of Eastern meditation that attempt to clear the mind of all thoughts. Centering prayer allows for the recognition of thoughts and gently releases them into the hands of God. I find the goal of the potter in centering clay to be helpful here. The goal is to bring all the clay in. to lose as little as possible in the centering process. And obviously in the craft of poetry, this has an economic motivation. What clay is lost either needs to be recycled um, or it is wasted. In prayer, we get to bring all of ourselves, all of our thoughts, our emotions, our fears, our worries, even our distractions, which may well be the very thing God wants to work with. I think of the prophets hearing the word of the Lord in the elements of daily life. One of the greatest challenges in prayer is the wandering mind, our scattered thoughts. In a little book um, called Into the Silent Land, uh, the author says, The thinking mind that whirls about is constantly concerned with thoughts, concepts, and images, and we obviously need this dimension of mind to meet the demands of the day, to reflect, to think on, and enjoy life. But the thinking mind has a professional hazard. If it is not engaged in its primary task of reason, given half a chance, it fizzes and boils with obsessive thoughts and feelings. There are, however, deeper demands, deeper encounters of life, love, and God, and there is far more to being alive than riding breathlessly around in the emotional roller coaster of obsessive thinking. I felt fairly pegged uh, by that description. And I have found two things to be helpful in dealing with my own own fizzing and boiling um, thinking mind. 
the first um, has been to dedicate myself to learning something new, learning the craft of pottery, to put the mind to its primary task that productively occupies it. And the second thing has been to give my mind, um, my imagination, a metaphor to explore, like the potter and the clay. The imagination is a powerful gift, and it's one that, like reason, is fallen and needs to be given direction to run in. It needs redemption. It needs baptism. Left to its own devices, my imagination regularly runs the course of catastrophizing, spinning out anxiously, or reliving conversations and interactions that I wish I'd done differently, or maybe rehearsing speeches that I'll never give to people who don't want to hear them. I even find this happens when I'm trying to pray. So, consider these images of the potter with his hands on the clay for prayer. And I'll end with this. It's a little... um, It's a little prayerful, imaginative engagement. So feel free to close your eyes if you would like. You can close your eyes and hold your hands. Or you can do something different with your body, too. Um, Or even uh, fix your gaze on one of these um, pots up here if you would like. Consider this image as a little tether for your whirling mind when you turn to pray. Look, there is God the Father, the master potter, working at his wheel. And there you are, the clay. Imagine this. He is gathering you, all of you, into the center. And imagine this. He is interested in moving you into a new shape. But he will not do this by mere force. And he can work with all that you are in all that you have and all that you are carrying. Or think of it this way. You are the potter at the wheel and the clay is your day or your week or this past weird, difficult year. Or maybe it goes even further, and it is elements of your whole life. And it's a wobbly, shapeless lump. And you have no idea what it can mean 
how it all belongs or what it can become. But you have your hands on it and you're gathering it into the center. And imagine like that upbeat pottery teacher we watched teach us how to center clay. Imagine your father, Master Potter, comes alongside you, helps lock your wrist and your hands in place, holds you there as you hold this clay. When Jesus was asked outright to teach the disciples how to pray, he gave them a very short prayer, the Lord's Prayer, and he prayed a much longer prayer for his friends on the night he was betrayed, which we know as his high priestly prayer. And we know that Jesus withdrew for times of solitude, but we know nothing about those times. And while this is completely speculative on my part, I don't think it is outrageous to imagine that Jesus was letting his father Potter center him and shape him. And may it be so with us, too. Amen. Thank you. You have um, really hung in there on a steamy night. And I know I went uh, a bit long, so... I'm very happy to stick around and talk about um, things that this sparks for you, questions that you have, um, observations you'd like to make or add to um, the reflections tonight. And you are also very free to go um, up to bed if you live here for now or uh, off to your homes. And feel free to, um, you know, push back, too. We're happy to hear other other takes on these passages or, um, yeah. Has anyone else worked with clay? Any other potters in the room? Yes, we told them that. You've done some? Okay. Yes, yes. Has anybody made anything with their little uh, lump through the evening? Yeah? Good. Mm-hmm. Sarah, this is a general question. Um, you talked about Val Weiss, the Shaker's head. Yeah. Um, in the realm of being. Um, what, uh, 
curious what you think that would look like. And also you used the phrase, metaphysical valley thing. Yeah, he, that's... Yeah, think about what you think metaphysical means. And then also, yeah. Let's go back to this. And other um, current or former Labrie workers can weigh in on this as well, of course. Um, this comes from, I believe, Schaefer's book, The God Who Is There. And um, we've often referenced it here as, um, I think it's, it's a... It's, it's a depiction of what happens as someone becomes a Christian. Like, we have to, we have to realize before anything, God is God and we are not. So, we bow, (laughs) prostrate ourselves, um, before the one who is God, is the creator. That's that first bowing. We realize we're a creature. That's a starting point. Um, and then in that's the metaphysical sort of uh, metaphysics is broadly defined as that which goes beyond what we can see. Am I right on that? <laughs> Philosophy people. Um, and then the the realm of morals is um, we have to deal with the fact that we have real guilt before God who is perfect and is a judge and we have a debt that is owed and we don't possess the resources to pay that debt off on our own Um, so the solution to that problem has to come outside of us so that I think is um, yeah a reflection of the need to receive as gift the gift of salvation the sacrifice, or yeah, of Christ. Yes, Lenny. It seems to me that I've heard this so long ago. The paper, it's even the first one, has become even more significant because of this whole idea that we make ourselves mm-hmm. create our own identity. The whole idea is that we are dependent. Yeah, thank you. Yes, Ben. Lack of willingness to acknowledge our dependence and our, and our, our it is actually one of the moral things we need to bow for. It's um, the uh, the hubris, you know, that somehow we're we're self-made and autonomous, and that, um, that's a failure to bow in the first sense, but it also makes it necessary for us to bow in the second sense too, because it's completely incorrect. But, um, the image, just to follow the image for I mean, it's a little bit like this idea of being self-made. It's a little bit like a pot shaping itself on the wheel. It just can't, it's not going to do it. You can't. You mm-hmm. need something outside mm-hmm. of itself. Yeah. Is there any pressure on it? It's yeah. Capacity. Yeah. 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 I, I think that's one of the reasons I have loved this image, and I find it helpful 
in both senses. <laughs> um, and, and as a, um, an image for formation, like, uh, personal formation in Christ, be like, I need the hands of God <laughs> firm and steady, you know, and he can take a whole lot of speed and, and wait, like, you know, he can center a whole lot of clay. <laughs> um, but like, I need that boundary um, and a good pressure to then be shaped. Probably yeah. go. So you could probably yeah. say quite a bit more about your ways where you see God in active looking and working with play. Are there like one or two other ways that you speak to you about? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Tim asked if uh, he just said you could probably you know, say a couple more ways uh, from the craft of pottery that you understand how you see God or things that you've learned about God. And one of the thoughts that this lecture, the process of working on this lecture led me to this thought, and I'd like to chase this more eventually, is when Jeremiah smashes this clay flask, um, it looks pretty hopeless, like, like this act of destruction. But, um, one of the really cool things about pottery is that, a a, a finished and then broken pot can be smashed up and put back into clay as grog, which is like this, uh, sandy-ish kind of texture material that gives some stability to new clay. So for me, I was like, there is a sign of resurrection right there that, um, and, and we know, you know, Israel was in exile, but then they also get to go back and there's a second temple that is built. And so that that is something amazing about this particular craft like if you want to be tenacious you don't have to lose anything <laughs> nothing has to be lost everything can be remade and so that to me is a really profound image within within the craft of resurrection and ultimately new creation and restoration. Um, yeah, that's what comes to mind first. Thanks for that question. Mm-hmm. Yes, Joshua. Uh, uh, slightly, slightly different, but just you uh, talking. I, I'm not a great prayer, um, and but some, uh, an image that has helped me uh, pray for people um, and stuck with me for a long time. But to me, the way you spoke at the end just it really brought it to mind. But um, the, I mean, Paul also talks about intercessory prayer, kind of in like battle terms, which is not. I often feel distracted and 
just also not up to a battle. Um, and so <laughs> yeah. I haven't connected to that. But uh, I, I heard Rome Williams talk about uh, intercessory prayer as, as, as holding. Like you hold someone mm-hmm. uh, and you hold them before, like hold them up mm-hmm. to the Lord. And kind of, and, and he said, like literally put your hands together or, or, mm-hmm. or envision what it would be to hold them. And, and to bring them before the Lord. And, and you just sort of, I, I found I prayed for people differently in a different, it's sort of, uh, anyway, this is the image of, of prayer as being uh, on the potter's wheel and being formed in the hands. Mm-hmm. It just, it was sort of in the same, it just sort of made yeah. the association. But it's a helpful image, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the reason why that has stuck with me for praying is because I, it's just very practical. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's, but it's with your body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that if, you know, we tell our kids to hold hands and close out, or we tell kids to do this so they don't get distracted. But it's helpful for, for, for me to do something different with my body. Mm-hmm. And he, but I mean, that's the irony is that, you know, you asked about, like, what are your experiences praying? Like, you can't not pray if you don't have the body. All of your prayer experiences are yeah. in your body. Yeah. You're just usually not, you're sort of living as when you don't have one, or at least yeah. that's how I am. So anyway, it's just, anyway, some of that, the imagery at the end, is, it's very evocative, it's very, I, I like it. So anyway, that's all. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the, um, the practice of centering prayer um, also has a lot to do with your breath and breathing, um, which I didn't get to incorporating there. But um, I find, too, that the language of um, God makes humans from dust and breath and then a pot is made of clay dust and it is filled with air. It is breathed into, in a sense, and then... In prayer, you know, I bet most of us experience this. Like, you can go about a day and then realize, like, man, I have not taken a deep breath maybe all day long. (laughs) And I've kind of been up here, Um, especially if you deal with anxiety. Like, that's, your breath is probably caught up here a good part of the time. And so... um, to take, you know, a little chunk of time, five minutes, and then, you know, you can work your way up from there. But simply breathing deeply and slowly, um, and for me, occupying my imagination with an image like this from Scripture or one verse or some particular phrase uh, you know, the tradition, the, uh, the monastic tradition turns to, um, the, the, the prayer that the blind man cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. And to pray that with the breath, with your breath. And then <clears throat> some of us could probably speak about, um, the way that deep breathing actually helps to, um, calibrate your stress systems, um, in your body. So, I mean, there's like a ton of really helpful 
physical benefits to that. Um, but it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't create like these sort of like big wow spiritual experience kinds of moments in prayer. But I think it's the kind of thing that is forming us over the long haul and kind of create it. It is like it's God's hands giving us a boundary, hemming us in, centering us. Mm. Andy. Thank you for this. Uh, I'm curious about the relationship between, like, the creature and our environment, which is also part of creation. But I get this sense, like, we're sort of formed by the environment that we're in, in some sense. It's like, I hang around a certain type of people who listen to a certain type of music, I'm probably going to be sort of formed into that similar person, I guess. And I guess, do you have any idea how that would maybe fit into this analogy of like, it doesn't seem right that that maybe that culture or whatever is like hands that are shaping us. Mm-hmm. But if it's not God censoring us upon Christ, it also doesn't feel like, well, there's no hands on the play. It's just sort of spinning out wider and wider. It definitely feels like I'm being born. I don't know if this is making sense. But yeah, like, yeah, it is. Keep going. Uh, mm-hmm. So I guess... Whose hands are those yep. that are shaping us? Yep. And also, like, I can't remember which passage it was, but the one saying, God makes some vessels for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that like an indirect way of God like, shaping someone for dishonorable? I, I don't know. <clears throat> Sorry. I'm mm-hmm. just curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, I think it's a great question. It's kind of. <clears throat> the question I asked you to think about, like, who's, in whose hands am I in? Whose hands am I in? In whose hands am I? (laughs) Dangling prepositions. Um, (laughs) um, Yeah. Feel free to chime in, anybody. I'm thinking about that. I, I mean, I, yes, we are being shaped consciously or unconsciously I think that is unavoidable we are influenced all the time Um, which becoming aware of that is an important (laughs) like a step oh somebody's hands are on me I didn't know that <laughs> do I want? Do I want those hands? I don't know. Um, so maybe I mean to kind of like tease that metaphor out. That's probably a really good question for reflection. Be like, all right, the Potter's wheel is in what space, <laughs> and who's who's teaching this class? Like, what's what's going on here? Um, 
because if I am clay, I am malleable, and I am being shaped. So, yeah, Michaela. shared with some of you at our arts night that I've been thinking about um, this astronomical uh, phenomenon called the Hill Sphere, which is this gravitational field of influence that a planet has or the sun has, and um, insofar as other bodies are within, orbiting well within the Hill Sphere of a larger body, they orbit well. And um, they aren't easily knocked off course. But uh, to me, what some of this 
rings of, I guess, are these different interconnected relationships where, okay, you know, I, <laughs> I'm, you know, there are things orbiting me and I'm orbiting and then together we are orbiting the sun, hopefully. Um, but the, the way in which like, yeah, we need, we need to make sure that we're orbiting, <laughs> orbiting Christ. It's another circular imagery. This is great. Like the centering, like even the universe is centered on, um, on the sun. Um, that's where I, my mind starts to go there, but, um, yeah, there are other thoughts about sort of how we identify and then respond to the forces that are forming us, maybe, Ben? Just, just go off what you said a minute ago, India. I think, um, it's not funny with metaphors, but it's so, it's so rich, it's not so much, uh, go pretty far with the metaphor before it breaks down. But yeah, it's, yeah. But um, centering, I've never, I've never worked on a project before, but, it, but, but what you just said, centering really needs to be one mind at work, two hands belong to the same person. Mm. <laughs> you know, you, you can't, you can't, I can't be centering with my right hand and someone else coming in with their left hand and, and mm-hmm. expect it to work. Right? Mm-hmm. It, has to, mm-hmm. it has to be... Mm very intentional act of one person. Um, mm. I just think of the, the way in which when we have no interest in being formed or shaped by the Lord, we're being formed and shaped by so many different influences all at once. And we're not very good at telling necessarily that we're, that we're off-center. You know, mm-hmm. the, the role of self-deception is almost like mm-hmm. someone standing back looking at the wheel can tell it's like... You know, yeah. it's all... It's all um, Oblong, but do we always know when we're oblong? No. <laughs> uh, not until we fly. collapse. <laughs> not until, yeah, or, or, you know, the plane goes flying across the river. Right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that um, we are being formed, and, and I think you're describing the feeling of being formed. There's, there's all these influences in people and groups and communities that, that are shaping who we are. Doesn't necessarily mean that that is automatically centered. Um, you know, just the idea of what is kind of one person has to be at the wheel. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And there's a 
you can shape our own life in a sense, but I think it comes down to that same thing that we were talking about, not the absence of influence, but mm-hmm. the presence of centering in on Christ. Yeah. And trusting that even with all these external, potentially fearsome and negative influences, that ultimately he is the master potter. Mm-hmm. And can even use those negative influences and mm-hmm. will mm-hmm. use those influences to shape us mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to ultimately perfect us. Yeah. And he has promised he also will do it. And that that is something that is solid that we can trust his hand in so maybe the influences I'm allowing for my life right now may be negative. He's even used that to maybe produce some self-awareness value mm-hmm. or something, some subtlety, some subtle gift that you might not see. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. I, I feel like my mind is finally caught up with this too. Like, you know, it's been amazing in a class to be a beginner this year and to to have master potters teaching me who know the changes that the humidity is going to make in the process or, you know, like in the winter when it's colder or summer or, you know, gosh, somebody walked by and they bumped your thing and now what? And the skill that they have to rescue things is amazing. Or when you flub it up yourself and then, uh, yeah, my teacher can come in and be like, wait, 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 it's okay, it's okay, <laughs> and do something with it. So that, um, as you were speaking, that made me think of like, oh, yes, like I think there's so much um, reassurance in this, in this metaphor and, you know, the idea that however good of a potter I become, <laughs> Like a master potter, it knows more and has a bigger vision and has more experience with dealing with all of the different dynamics and circumstances. That's a comfort. Lenny. Just thinking, talking about shaping our hearts desires and David Smith's work and habit formation. This, this metaphor plays into that as well because I forget if it was you or the father who said you have to just do what you want and you get the feeling. Yeah. And uh, that how we shape our desires through then we call it that's what you choose repetition or something worthwhile mm-hmm. you have to do it a lot and it shapes Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I've heard stories of, you know, potters who go to work at some big pottery studio and they have to throw 500 mugs before there's a keeper. <laughs> and, yeah, this repetition. Um, and the, the book that I quoted from, this little book called Centering, the, the potter who wrote it said, you know, it took me seven years to be able to reliably center any piece of clay given to me. Seven years doing this, hit and miss, hit and miss, hit, and now, like, now I know I can do this with confidence. And, and she said one of her, one of the things that she had to work through was, uh, her propensity to fall in love with a mistake. And um, I was like, oh, that's, you know, she contrasts it with like the opposite problem is like having so much technical proficiency that there's no playfulness to, um, to the work, you know, but the other side of that is like, it's all playfulness and no proficiency. <laughs> and so like how to, um, know that about yourself when you're like, Oh, it's fun to, to be like, let's see how far this can go, you know, in, in the process of making. But, um, maybe it's also fun to like get really good <laughs> at it. Mm. That's why I never mastered an instrument. Examples of the necessity of murdering your darlings, the quote the decided murdering your darlings, whatever, whatever art. Yeah. Whether you're writing, whether you're yeah. trying to compose music, whether you're you're really attached to something and maybe uh -huh. it comes along with attention, that's just not good. You should just crush it and start over again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or be like, it's, it's, it's good, but it just doesn't fit. You know, it doesn't fit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Keep that for something else. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. mm. Cool. Any final thoughts rumbling around out there? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.